0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. You can be seated. Good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. morning. All right. Uh, Don't worry. I just turned the heater on so it'll be warming up a little bit in here. Uh, If you want to be getting out your Bibles, you can be turning in to Genesis chapter 35. We're trucking along through the book of Genesis here and our journey with the patriarchs to figure out who is this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Today's story reminded me about a dog that i had heard, a dog named Petunia. Here's Petunia. Not the cutest dog in the world, but that's okay. Uh, Petunia's got an interesting story. In 2003, She went missing from her family's farm in Spotsville or Spotsylvania, Virginia. And the family searched and searched for Petunia for months and months, put up flyers, searched all the neighborhoods, did everything they could to search the area. But Petunia was nowhere to be found. And then in 2011, a woman in Yuba County, California, was out walking her own dogs when she found this stray dog So she got the dog. She took it to to a shelter who scanned it for her to see if she had a microchip. And sure enough, she did. And sure enough, that very same dog was Petunia, who had wandered from home eight years ago, 2,700 miles away. Can you imagine what it was like when Petunia finally came home? Can you imagine that family, how much they loved it when after eight years, 2700, 000, or 2,700 miles, can you imagine how much they loved it when Petunia finally came home? In our passage today, Jacob is a lot like Petunia. He's wandered far from home. But actually, Petunia has nothing on Jacob. Jacob has been gone not for eight years, but for 30 years and this amazing thing happens. You know, chapter 28, he has this amazing experience with God. He sees, you know, we call it Jacob's ladder, this ladder, this vision that God gives him with angels coming up and down. And he calls that place Bethel, which means God's home. This is home right here. And in that place, he experienced God's presence, he experienced God's power. But Jacob wasn't quite ready to completely uh, give his whole life over to the promises of God. He wasn't quite done with his journey of faith, and so he strayed from home, and he wandered off on this long, circuitous journey, and he paid a price for it. Y'all, the chapters before this, chapters 33 and 34, are some of the messiest, most tragic chapters in the whole Bible. But we pick up the story in chapter 35, some 30 years after Jacob left God's home, and God issues another invitation to Jacob, and it's the same invitation to you this morning. Come home. Come home. Well, we find out today, this is a big idea of our passage. God loves it when his children come home. God loves it when his children come home. So let's take a look at Genesis 35, verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So when Jacob gets this invitation, he's living among the Canaanites, and he's built a pretty successful life for himself. And the invitation is this, Jacob, give up on the house you built for yourself. Come to Bethel. Come to the house of God. Come to my house. God's telling Jacob, Jacob, remember that place we first met? You knew I was God. You clung to me. Come back home, Jacob. I want us to notice two initial things about this invitation. Number one, God initiates the invitation, and that's always how it works. God initiates the invitation. That's a good thing. But, y'all, by the time we've spent so much time now with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, we know if it's up to us, we're never coming home. If it's up to us to just come to our senses on our own, it'll never happen. Our whole faith, our whole hope rests in the fact that he initiates, and then we respond. You know, all of us, I think this is, I think all of us can identify with Jacob. I think this is true to life. If we follow Jesus long enough, we need to hear him initiate this invitation to us. Because, you know, most of us, we've had great, maybe profound experiences with God in our past, He's revealed himself. He's worked in your life. He's, he's answered prayer. You've been awed by him. We've been amazed by him. We, there's been times we could sense his presence just as real as the person sitting next to you. And then all of a sudden you look up one day and it's like, what happened? Where did God go? Better question, where did I go? Where have I wandered off to? I don't know when it happened, but somehow I have wandered off. And that sense of closeness has been replaced with distance. And maybe that strong faith you once, once felt has been replaced with doubt, maybe with fear. You've been there? Listen, I, sh- I shave with that guy every day. I've been there. Maybe it's been a year. Maybe it's been 10 years. Maybe even like Jacob, it's been 30 years since you've had the last experience with God that you can remember. God hasn't forgotten you. That's what he's saying here. God has not forgotten you. He's not even sitting at home waiting for you to figure it out. He seeks you out, and he initiates this invitation with you. Come home. It's time. Come home. So the second thing I want us to see is that God repeats his invitation. He actually first sent this invitation out in chapter 31. Is when he first told Jacob, hey, come on back home, Jacob. That was 10 years ago. That was 10 years from this point. And Jacob has followed Kinda. Kinda. He's in no hurry. He's like a sloth on a full stomach. He's just taking his precious little time. Or like my kids when it's time to clean their room. No hurry. He gets distracted along the way. He gets distracted by his fear with Esau. He's distracted by power and politics at Shechem. And I can't help but think, you know, maybe there's some here who have been intending to follow Christ with their whole life for several years now. But maybe you've gotten distracted. You know, after my career is settled, when the kids get a little older, when football season's over, when I'm not so busy. Maybe for you today, today, right now, through his word, God is repeating his invitation to you. Come home. It's time. Come on home. But in order to come home, Jacob's going to have to do some things. See, next Jacob realizes that there are some things in his life now that are incompatible with the life of faith. And they must go in order for him to go home. Let's keep reading in verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all their foreign gods they had, and the rings they wore that were in their ears, Jacob hid them under, under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So he tells, he gathers, gathers his whole camp together, everybody, and he says, it's time to put away our foreign gods. Now you may say, wait a minute, what are those foreign gods doing there? After all God has done for Jacob, and he's just changed his name, we learned last week, to Israel, and he's still holding on to these foreign gods. It's because Jacob had drifted, and in his drifting, he had adopted the idols of the world around him. We know some of these idols got here from Leah, uh, or excuse me, from Rachel, from his wife. Some of them they had just gathered uh, from Shechem in the previous chapter. And I know it's easy to hear these things and talk about little statues and be like, oh, we're, we've evolved so much beyond that. Listen, I know we don't have statues of little gods in our homes, and I hope, I hope you don't. I don't know, maybe you do. But all of us have idolatrous hearts. That's what the Bible says over and over. We are idol-making factories. You know what idolatry is? Idolatry is making an eternal investment in something that is temporary. It is making an eternal investment in something that is temporary. And that can be anything. And often it can be and often it is good things. But when you take that as something that is good and you make it into a God, that's bad. That's real bad. So there's a lot of things I love. You know what? I love my family. I love money. I love food, clearly. I love football. I love traveling. I love any new electronic device. Doesn't matter who made it. Apple, Google, don't care. If you put a shiny new electronic in front of me, I'm in a a happy place. I'm living my best life. None of those are bad. But my heart has a tendency to invest in those things as if they were eternal. And they're not. They are temporary. So they have no business competing with God for the real estate in my heart. You know how you find your idols? Two ways to find your idols. Number one, what makes you the happiest? It's not God. Number two, what makes you the angriest? Our idols make us so happy when we have them, and we get angry. We get fighting mad when they are threatened. And y'all, this is not going to be a controversial statement. I'm sure you've seen it too. Our culture is the angriest I've ever seen it, and only getting angrier. You know what? I can understand that from the outside world, but what is the deal with Christians being so angry? Why are we so angry? Almost always, it is because our idols are being threatened. And the real tragedy over and over and over again is we aren't even aware that they are idols. So Christian, today, it's worth asking, if there is something in your life that can be so easily threatened, is it possible? Is it just possible? You've been making an eternal investment in something that is temporary. And so here's the invitation this morning. Don't get angry. Do what Jacob does. Come back home. He takes another step. It says they purify themselves. This is a a picture of of singular loyalty. It is moving God from a to the, from a thing that you trust in, hope in, worship, adore, to the thing you trust in, hope in, love, worship, and adore. It means the throne of your heart now has a population of one. That's it. He says we're going to change our garments. That's his way of saying we're going to walk the walk. Not just talk the talk. We are going to look the part. We're not going to look like the outside world anymore. You know, sometimes people have been wondering from God for so long, you have no idea that they are believers. And God says, as part of an invitation, you know what? You're going to look the part now. People will know you are mine because your whole life is going to make it obvious. And then they go bury the idols, it says, out by the tree. You know what you bury? Dead things. That's what you bury. And the problem with idols is that they are dead. They have no life in them. And he's pointing out that they are the exact opposite of what God has been in his life. Verse 3 is a great verse. He says about God, He has been with me everywhere I have gone and has answered me in my distress. You see these idols? I've had to lug these idols around all over the ancient Near East, and they've never done a thing for me. They've never answered me. Not even once. They can't. They are dead. But the living God. He's been carrying me. It's almost like Jacob saying, you know what? I've tried to get rid of God. He keeps following me around. I can't shake him. I can't get rid of him. He pursues me over and over and over again. Don't, I'm going to follow God, he's saying, because he is alive. He is not dead like these idols. And years after this, y'all, years after this, you know what? They're going to try to bury God. Jesus, when they take him down the, from the cross, they try to bury him, but the grave couldn't hold him. And in the words of the angel, when they came to to see Jesus, you will not find the living among the dead. Idols, dead idols have no place with the living God. And that is why Jacob is going to all this trouble. It'd be so easy to say, "Why go to all this trouble. Just start walking, just get to Bethel and deal with it there. It's because Jacob knows God wasn't mainly interested in their location. He was interested in their hearts. The invitation to come home is the invitation to have a purified heart. Bury those dead idols and build your whole life on God. That's what he does. And then after that, they start their journey. Verse 6, Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother and Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, so he called its name Elon bakuth So he makes it back home in verse 6, he gets there, and right off the bat, it's kind of subtle, but we notice something is different about Jacob this time. Did you notice the name? He changed it from Bethel, which is house of God, to El-Bethel, which is God of the house of God. Jacob's saying, you know what? I used to think this was a great place. Now I get it. It's not a great place. It's a great God. It's not about the place. It is about the person. Coming home ultimately isn't about a place. It is about a person. And this is so important for us to remember because it's so easy, isn't it, to make it about coming to church. You know, I've been, I've been straying. I've been gone too long. I haven't been doing what supposed to do. I need to get back to church. And you know what? That's true. You should church is good for you. It's biblical. You should do that. Absolutely. But ultimately, it's not the place that's special. It's the person. It's about knowing the God of the church more than it is about just attending church. Because listen, without the person, this place can't help you. This is just four metal walls. It can't do a thing for you. But with God, the person behind the place, he can transform you. And then we get verse 8. That to us seems totally out of place. None of us would have put verse 8 there. Even though it happened, we would have just left it out. I call it the warning shot of death. See, if we wrote the story, man, as soon as Jacob got home, he makes this great exclamation, it's God of the house of God. Man, that's when we would cue the, the, the credits and the inspirational music and like God and Jacob would go running off in the distance in slow motion. We would not interrupt it with this wet blanket of death. And someone dying. We haven't heard much from Deborah. Deborah is Jacob Jacob's mom's nurse. So most likely, this is Jacob's last attachment to his beloved mother. You may remember, Rebecca loved Jacob, and, and he loved her. And she had come up with this scheme to cheat Isaac and Esau. And by doing things her way, she had become, become her own worst enemy. And she never saw her son again. She is dead By now, they never saw each other, and Jacob's last attachment to his mother is now gone. And I think this episode, this little note, is right here for a very specific purpose, to remind us this world is not your home. You better have something in your life bigger than just your life, because this world, all of our lives, is passing away. We need to come home to God because anything you've built in this world will not last. That pesky enemy called death still lurks and you cannot escape it. The house of God is the only thing that will last. Then I want us to notice how God greets Jacob when he sees him. Verse 10, and God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your body. Notice here, God does not remind Jacob of what he has done. He reminds Jacob of who he is. Jacob's done a lot of bad things over the past 30 years, a lot. It would be a long list. But God doesn't meet him with a list of his deeds. God seems completely uninterested in shaming Jacob or rehashing his past. All he does is remind Jacob who he is. You know, I've I've received a lot of invitations in my life. Never once, not a single time, has someone addressed the invitation to my deeds. You know, said something like, To the guy who can grow a beard in two and a half days, the pleasure of your company is requested or something Every single invitation is always addressed to my name, to who I am. The reason God keeps initiating and repeating his invitation to you to come back home and the reason you can always respond is because it's not based on what you've done. It is based on who you are. Those are two very different things. Who you are is not what you have done with God. Now, don't get me wrong, without God on your own, then yes, absolutely, you are absolutely what you do on your own. And that remains true unless and until God changes your name. Someone more powerful than you has to change who you are. Remember Israel? Jacob didn't earn that name. Jacob didn't pick that name for himself. It's a name God gave him. And when God gives you a name, when that happens, you're no longer determined by what you do. It is really ultimately decided by who God is. And that's why in verse 11, the next thing God does is remind Jacob who he is I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai, the God of the impossible, the God of power and might, the God who saves, the God who keeps his promises. And the next thing he does in these next few verses is he reaffirms, God reaffirms the promises he has made, not just to Jacob not even just to Isaac, all the way back to Abraham. He said, he's saying, Jacob, I made these promises before you were born, and nothing you've done has changed my intention to keep my promise. I think this is important. Y'all, I think Jacob probably thought he'd messed it up too much. He'd been gone too long. He had strayed too far. He had too many idols. He'd taken just too long to come back. And God says, Jacob... Now, don't get me wrong. You did a lot of dumb stuff. I mean, that was pretty dumb. But I haven't been threatened for one nanosecond. My promises have never been threatened by what you have done. Remember, I'm El Shaddai. I'm God Almighty. What I promised all the way back to Abraham, I will do. And so when you receive that invitation from God to come back home, here's what you need to know. That invitation to come home, it is not based on what you've done. It is not even ultimately based on who you are ultimately. The invitation to come home is based on who God is. That's what it's based on. And this is so important. God's grace and his promises come, we got to know this. We got to know it's based on God Almighty because they're going to come in the midst of our old enemy death and our pesky enemy sin. Verse 16 says, Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went to labor, and she had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. What we see here is God's faithfulness in the midst of death you may remember up till now Rachel only had one son Joseph and there's 11 sons total but the full nation will be 12 sons 12 tribes of Israel and so this is the birth of the 12th and with this birth the promise of a nation that God made all the way back to Abraham is fulfilled God has done it but we find out the the birth is difficult it is painful the midwife tries to comfort, comfort her by saying you have another son and then it says in verse 18, as her, as her soul is departing, she names him son of my sorrow. This is sad. Son of my sorrow. But then Jacob changes his name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. So it means he's going he's to have a, a new favorite. And again, I find this fascinating. This is the culmination of so many promises. This is not how Disney would write it. We, we see it not as pie in the sky promises, but this is real life. We are hounded by death. We see pain and sorrow that accompanies it. See, I think God is trying to highlight here. You know, faith is not about, faith is about seeing the power and the purpose of God, even in our pain. Even in our pain, we see the power and purpose of God. It's not, faith is not a, a life of ease. It's not a life of comfort. Faith is not claiming happiness, health, and wealth that God has never promised you. Faith is not about twisting his arm, jumping up and down, getting real excited until he gives you what you want. No, faith is coming home with him in the midst of a broken and decaying world because we've seen death twice now here comes the enemy of sin verse 22 while israel lived in that land reuben went and lay with bilhah his father's concubine and israel heard of it now the sons of jacob were 12 we got to understand this passage is a transition to the next generation And every time there's been a new plan in the first 12 chapters and then a new generation after Abraham, we still have the same questions. Is it going to be any better? Is it going to be any different? Is is God's promise working? Is his plan working? And we'd be tempted to think, okay, now Jacob's home, the nation is formed. Maybe our wayward hearts will be healed. Maybe this cycle of sin that we've seen ever since Genesis 3, maybe that cycle will finally be broken. But this text shows us Every generation will have to deal with the enemy of sin. What happens here, it's most likely not a moment of passion. It is most likely a well-calculated power play. See, Rachel, you may remember, was always the favorite wife of Jacob, but she had just died. Leah, which is Reuben's mom, was neglected, unloved by Jacob. And no doubt her sons felt that. No doubt that rivalry continued. In fact, we'll see that rivalry all the way up to where they sell one of their own brothers into slavery. And now that Rachel is dead, Reuben wants his mother to finally become the honored wife. But that's probably not gonna happen. He knows what most likely will happen is that Jacob will adopt Bilhah as his favorite wife. So Reuben makes it where Jacob has to reject Bilhah. And hopefully, with her out of the way, Leah will finally get the place of honor that she has been craving, and that honestly she is due as the first wife. This is also an attempt to claim Jacob's throne. It's a power play. So Back in the ancient Near East, the possession of a father's concubine validated their succession. They're being next in line for the throne. So we'll see this later. When Absalom, when he takes the throne from his father, David, he will do the exact same thing. And so in the eyes of an ancient Near East, this is an attempted coup is what this is. And y'all, but this is nothing new. This should all look familiar. All envy, jealousy, abuse, scheming. We've seen this in the life of Jacob over and over and over again. And now it's just getting repeated in the next generation. So sin's not going anywhere. It will remain in each and every generation. It will do everything it can to pull all of us away from home. And so we should be reminded of what God said in Genesis 4 to Cain. He said, Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you. Sin is in every generation and in every person, and it wants to destroy you. See, it's not just that you can come home to God. It's that you need to come home to God. Straying from God, men and women, it's not like, you know, staying out at a party, a little pastor curfew. And you know you're supposed to get home, but this is actually really way fun, more fun and, and actually better. No, no, no. Jesus says that straying on your own is like a sheep without a shepherd. You all know, sheep, most people know this, sheep are really dumb. They are, but that's not their biggest problem. Their biggest problem isn't that they are dumb. It is that that they are defenseless. They have absolutely no defenses against predators. And so there's a saying that goes, the most, most vulnerable animal in the world is a sheep without a shepherd. But the most secure one is a sheep with his shepherd. Because the shepherd will kill the lion and the bear when they come for that sheep, just like David did. And Jesus later would go on to say, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the best shepherd, the best shepherd that there ever was. So, Because when you are at home with me, I'm your refuge. I protect you from that lion who is prowling to steal, keel, and destroy you. Coming home to God means finding a refuge from sin and death. That's why we have to come home. And we've seen lots of sin and death in the life of, life of Jacob, haven't we? I mean, these past few chapters, there. are they are no fairy tale, but the most important part of any story is how it ends. And this chapter closes with God having accomplished all that he said he would. Let's pick it up in verse 27. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre and at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abram and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years and Isaac breathed his last and he died and was gathered to his people old and full of days and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So we get our third funeral of the chapter, but this one isn't quite as sad. Isaac, Isaac, we're told, has lived 180 years old and full of days, but notice what has happened. God has accomplished everything he said he would, and this is amazing. Y'all think of all that we've been through with this family. Abraham's fear and his foolishness Isaac's worshiping his appetites instead of God. All the warring factions between parents, between siblings, between wives. Jacob, all his selfish schemes, all his trust, only in himself. But Isaac, despite his passivity, has perpetuated the covenant. Jacob, this deceiver, has become a follower of God. He's back home in the land of Abraham. And Esau is there. Who saw that coming? His brother Esau. The brothers are no longer warring With each other. And now a whole nation is formed. The 12 tribes of Israel are completed. What the text is telling us here at the end of chapter 35 is this Sin is a really big deal. It is a really big deal, but it's no match for the grace of God. It is absolutely no match for the grace of God. I love what R. Kent Hughes said looking back over this whole life of Jacob as it's coming to a close. This patriarch's life assures us of the triumph of grace. The triumph of grace. Grace always triumphs. And because of that, you can always come home to God. Because see, this thing tends to happen in us. This is why we have to remember this, is when we do wake up and we do realize we have strayed, unfortunately, usually our reaction, our tendency is to hide or run away from God, not to him. But the cross, men and women, the cross of Jesus Christ says, you can run to him. You don't have to run away from him. You can run home to him. Romans 5, 8 says it this way. But God shows his love for us in, okay, so in that, so whatever comes next is going to show us how much God loves us while we were still sinners Christ died for us. When you come to your senses, it's news to you. It's not news to God. He's known all along. You're the one just now finding out. And way back before you ever even came to your senses, God knew and he decided to die for it. Why? Why would he do that? He wanted to make sure nothing can prevent you from coming home, coming home to God. The cross is your invitation to come home. And because of the cross, we find out, you know, the way back to God, it's not some perilous path through the wilderness with all kind of hindrances. No, no, no. It is a four-lane superhighway with no speed limit. And you can get there as fast as you're able, unhindered to God. So I want you to remember this week, God loves it when his children come home. Remember that this week. Write it on your mirror text it to yourself. Heck, make a t-shirt if you need to. I don't care, but remember it this week. When you find yourself living for yourself, wondering from God, remember God loves it when his children come home. If you've been stuck in sin and shame, remember God loves it when his children come home. When you've been locked in conflict and bitterness and, and envy and competition with other people, tell yourself, God loves it when his children come home. And when you realize that moment, you realize you've been making an eternal investment in temporary things. Remember, God loves it when his children come home. And when you remember that, you know the next thing you do? Just go home. That's all you do. It's that easy. Let's pray together. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.